sponsored by the Dunleary Rattown Local Enterprise Office. You're listening to Business Eye on Dublin South FM. Yes, folks, and you're back tuning in to Business Eye. Yes, here at Dublin South FM. And as you know, each week I try and bring you people from all around the world, people that are influencers, people that are thought leaders, people that just get it. Nice people, genuinely honest people, people that we know and people that we want to know. And today I have a friend of mine, Raymond Hegarty. He is the man when you want to speak about IP and innovation. They call him the IP million dollar or billion dollar expert or strategist. Yes, he has made more patents. He has helped more people to achieve greatness in their own companies. And today I'm going to have a chat with him. We're going to talk about leadership. We're going to talk about innovation. We're going to talk about IP. We're going to talk about uncertainty. We're going to talk and we like to talk. Raymond, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on with you, Joe. It is, yes. We have had many conversations and the more that I talk to you, you you're you're coming to be that wise old owl, even though you're not old. So all that knowledge on it. Tell me, you know, I watched your TED Talk and it was a, a great TED Talk. And, you know, it's something that both of us share being on that red dot. Um, what I loved about it was that people really forget about the inventions or the creators that come from Ireland. And you can understand why, you know, a lot of big international companies come to Ireland as well because of the mindset that we have. What do you think that is? Why do you think the Irish have that mindset that makes them, you know, travel around the world? And there's 70 million of us scattered, you know, in every corner of the globe. Yes, uh, as you know, Ireland is called the land of the saints and scholars. So there is a long tradition of curiosity and interest and learning. And when we think about Innovation, you know, I said it in my TED talk about um, Irish inventors and the history of Irish invention that we often think about people like Edison or some of these, you know, Steve Jobs, or they talk about Elon Musk. And a lot of people then take the message from that that invention must be an American thing. And that was the reason for me giving the talk, but just to bring home to people that there is a lot of invention that comes from Ireland and from other places around the world as well. So our curiosity, our imagination, our storytelling, because invention very often is looking at a story and trying to change the story. Yeah, it's it's the Shanna Keys. We are Shanna Keys. And, you know, we do love a good story. And I'm sure our ancestors, you know, sat around those fires and reinvented ways to survive. But when you talk about it, look at like even, you know, Norwich people were involved in building the White House, you know, you know, the even the national, the American national anthem, the, the, mu- the music is from an old Irish uh, shanty drinking song. So all these things are compliant. But as my father used to say, you know, everything happens in America. You know, <laughs> aliens will never land in Ireland. They land in America. Everything happens there. So. The rest of the it's world doesn't count. It's interesting to say that, that you know, it's not just Ireland and America. Um, the Japanese national anthem 
was written by an Irish man. There you go. Uh, the music for the Japanese national anthem. So our influences spread around the world in many different ways. And sometimes it's by people who aren't even very well known in Ireland. Well, I was in Guam. And if anyone knows Guam, it is a small little island out in the China Sea. Tiny. And when I was out there, I noticed that everybody was speaking with an Irish twang. And I couldn't really understand it. So I said, you know, there's a little Irish twang. The Irish missionaries were out there. And that's how, you know, the, the twang built up and and stare like I was going, oh, my God, this is really weird in the middle of nowhere. Like it literally, if you've been there, if, you know, which I doubt a lot of people have, <laughs> it is the Irish twang. But yourself, why did you, Raymond, why did you get into, you know, innovation and IP? What, what was what was the, the driving force, the desire that drove you? It's well, ever since I was a child, I was interested in invention. And I originally became an engineer. That's what I studied in university. And then I went off to, I mentioned Japan. I was working in Japan in the electronics industry when Japan was the number one country in the world for electronics. And then I studied, I came back and I did a business degree. I did an MBA. I also went and studied law. So having that combination of legal, technical, and commercial is a very good combination for the business of intellectual property. Because intellectual property is based on legal rights. If you're doing licensing, and I've done licensing of portfolios of 10 patents to 100 patents, 40,000 patents. So I've done licensing at all levels. And the licensing is based on the patent, which is a legal document, and the licensing agreement, which is also a legal document. But because it's technical subject matter, you need to be able to understand the technical side of things. And if you're involved in any negotiations, you need to do something that's going to be in the business interest of the other side. You need to understand the commercial objectives and the economics of this to be able to achieve a solution that works for everyone. You know, I've gone through that whole process of creating a patent um, and I understand the process and what needs to be done and, you know, the backwards and forwards on it as well. But when with IP, what's, what companies would you specialize in? Is it tech companies or is it from a different, multiple different ranges of organizations? It's, it's from a range, but the common factor would be that they're IP intensive companies. So it could be life science companies or, you know, what people traditionally call tech companies uh, doing a lot of work in AI and in um, connected devices, internet of things, AR, VR, that type of thing. And do you deal directly with America since we're talking on the subject, you know, the great brains from Ireland over or is it Everywhere. Have you Irish companies or is it mainly American companies that you deal with? Primarily my business is outside Ireland because the business of ideas is a global business. So I'm doing things with American companies, uh, with Japan, China, Korea, because there's a lot of technology going on in that part of the world and European companies as well. So, you know, I go where the ideas are. The ideas. Is there many ideas out there? Is there silly ideas out there? Is there sometimes is there ideas that you look at and just blow your mind and go, I need to be part of this? I'm privileged that I get to meet people at a very early stage before the rest of the world gets to see a lot of the cool things that are brought to the world. So 
I'm going into very creative environments. I saw a quote that you put up from Maya Angelou, actually, is, is that you can't use up creativity. The more you have, the more you use. So going into these circles of people who are sharing their creativity and from that creativity, they're developing more. And if you take it into international environments, you start to get different perspectives. For me, you know, being creative is curiosity and I have a curious mind. I've always learning. I remember picking up a book, it was probably around 10 or 11, and it was about the world and it was about, it went from dinosaurs to how to make this or how a kettle boils and it blew my mind. And I still have the book today and I give my kids now read it. Um, and that was the one book that created my desire to find out more about everything. And I can't, you know, I'm a big reader, as you know, and my children now are absorbing books. But what do you think makes someone that, you know, to be curious and to have that mind to search for what do I need to find out? To opposite to, you know, the one that, and I mean no disrespect who want to watch Coronation Street and EastEnders and Netflix 24-7. Well, you mentioned kids. You know, if you look at children, they're all curious. They're all creative. You see them doing colouring and they're drawing things and they're making all kinds of strange colours. And you look at it and you're trying to work out what it is. Very often, you then get society coming in and saying that, no, 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 the trees are supposed to be green. The sky is supposed to be blue that you know the water is only supposed to be this size and you get people starting to come in and squeeze that creativity so when you say what makes people creative i think that people are naturally creative and the people who really move far are the ones where that creativity was nurtured and a bit like we're saying already about not using up the creativity with maya maya angelou that if you're in an environment where creativity is being encouraged more creativity will come from that and the world benefits from it. Well, I believe, and in my own opinion, that, you know, the iPad in children has killed their creativity, has affected their intuition and their lateral thinking because it's just, you know, keying their mind. And I spoke about this many times on other shows and I'll stand to with that. You know, when our children, like we don't have them in our house, uh, we have our phones and no one is allowed to watch YouTube. You know, there's, you know, there's, they watch a couple of hours of Netflix. But I have seen my children transform from when we, when they accidentally broke to the, the, to the people they are now. Like, you know, my daughter was sculpturing cities, playgrounds out of copier paper. You know, making them all up that if she if she had the iPad, she wouldn't. I know she wouldn't have been doing that. I know. Yeah. It's as you know, the benefit the technology has brought, you know, sometimes uh, counterbalance that sometimes people are going for the convenience of the technologies available to them. So you will see things like, you know, people researching something online and they don't have the critical skills. And as soon as they can find an easy answer, they stop the inquiry. And that is something which is uh, problematic. Well, I think that's the reason that people want the answers really quickly. And even in business and in IP or innovation, people are willing to pay if it's easy and it's seductive and, and hoping they get the answer without putting in the time themselves. Yeah. 
and it is an overwhelming world. So you know, people need the help. So you, and that's you know, I don't work with IT departments. I work with the CEOs because what I've found is that intangible value is very important for those companies, and the CEOs just don't have the bandwidth to be able to do all of this themselves. And coming to me is a way of being a shortcut where they can save years of moving along the curve of being able to bring in, you know, to improve their IP capabilities. And from that, then they can attract investment, they can scale their business, they can recognize employees' uh, contribution as well. So there's lots of benefits that come from that. Well, okay. So what qualities do you look for in a client that ticks those boxes then that you want to stay with? Um, you know, we've talked about um, curiosity. So curiosity is... Uh, is an important part of it. Another part of it is ambition, because some of this is going to take hard work, and they need to have a bigger picture as to where they're going, so that it's going to be worth putting in the work to get through to that. So the ambition about the bigger picture, combined with the curiosity, and then also the generosity of the solutions that they're bringing to the world, I think those are um, interesting combinations for me. Ethical. Absolutely. That's. You know, you have you without that you have nothing. Yeah, yeah, you're not helping some company to destroy the world with their new technology. <laughs> and there are a lot of tech, um, temptations around. So it, it's it's ethics are tested in different ways, and even you know how ethics are defined. You know, people sometimes have a bit difficulty getting their head around that. Yeah, and I think with AI coming in as well, that you know, there's you know, there's. I did an interview there the other day and it'll be released now shortly on AI. And one of the questions that's coming up is where do we draw the line? You know, and also AI can be destroyed. So, you know, there is, it, it is only just a learning tool, but there has to be, um, there has to be some sort of limitations put in place that it will allow it to happen as well. Would you agree with that or, or disagree with that? Um, I agree. It's a huge matter of debate right now. Um, AI has brought a lot of benefits, a lot of convenience. It helps to um, eliminate a lot of um, tedious, repetitive, mind-squashing work. And the AI can can do, you know, for example, you can get AI making decisions for banks about mortgage applications. And this is very convenient. It's a way of reducing the costs to the banks. So you're reducing transaction costs. The flip side, though, is that current mortgage applications may have some biases built in. If you use the AI to automate this, these decisions, you may end up magnifying those biases. And because you trust the AI to make all of the decisions, you're not even questioning it. So there are dangers around that, that you need to understand what are the inherent biases and is there a way of uh, factoring those out when you are developing an AI solution? It's interesting because they've also, you know, that's the same argument when it comes to recruiting people that the AI is doing it, but it's, you know, and the facial recognition and looking at the expressions on people's face if they're doing it, if they're being interviewed online, and it's taking out that consciousness level and that, you know, the energy and the connection between the people. And sometimes someone might have all the stuff there on paper and AI could be picking it up, but it could be that one conversation at the very beginning instead of the end that could make that person horrible as well. Now, one thing is that it can um, bring fairness into the situation as well, that you don't have the same interviewer bias. 
So if you can have uh, the fairness baked into the selection process, you remove the problems around um, interview bias. You know, it, it's fairly common. Like there's a lot of companies that people will hire people in their own image. And that means that you reduce the amount of diversity coming into a company. That's interesting as well. Going back to mortgages, one of the things which is flagging at the moment, and it's about the uncertainty in the world. And I think that you know a lot of people in in companies are you know they're starting to you know starting to get that little bit of um, fear. Maybe might be too a strong word to see where the next couple of years are going. We know that the uncertainty what's going on in Europe, we know the what's happening in, in America as well, is that it's it's creating a little bit of doubt. Europe is going to have a jump in interest rates. And I don't I think people have to really understand as well that when uncertainty comes in, especially with its fuel, and then you see you know it's it's uh food and then that's the core elements that interests grow up and you know everyone's working away but you know if if interest rates were to jump up in ireland by six percent just in ireland alone we would lose 40 years of prosperity and we would be back to the 80s and i think you and me can you know remember the 80s um and there was vast vast immigration as well what are what are companies doing now about in a, with innovation with the uncertainty and kind of moving forward you know i've always believed spend wisely that's one of the things i've learned as an entrepreneur over the years is spend wisely but spend on value don't stop spending spend on value and spend wisely what about your own thoughts Yes, um, companies have learned to be prudent. And in the last two years with the lockdown as well, um, there was a slowdown in general economic activity in most areas. So a lot of companies had to um, come back to being more prudent as to how they will allocate their resources. Um, some companies ended up um, you know, in a terrible situation and some of them didn't come through it. And the ones that have come through this are now still looking at a lot of global uncertainty. That you have, you know, problems with wars. You have problems with um, uh, supply chains. The issue of supply chains is something where, you know, supply chains and food. We're going to see a lot of disruption in food supply chains, and it's going to mean that all of the work done over the last few years to reduce the costs of food probably are going to be reversed because we have cut back so much in the food supply chain that there's no redundancy built into it. And to build the redundancy into this, there's going to be a cost and the cost is going to be the consumer. So I really believe that the era of cheap food um, is behind us and that we're going to have to look at um, the impacts of that on society. So we've heard about inflation, we've heard about interest rates, um, but the one part that they haven't been talking about, and it's something which is going to be basic to every level of society, and that's the year of cheap food. Yeah, like, you know, a farmer up the road got rid of us. You know, he basically said he's not grown, you know, potatoes anymore because the supermarkets can supply them cheaper than what he can. You know, we know that there's big changes around the world and people are kind of going, hang on, 
we've seen it ourselves. You know, you go into Dunn Stores, which is a Norwich supermarket, and they have um, green beans from Kenya, which are half the price of what a supplier would have to buy them in here. So yeah, I think that's gonna. I think that's gonna change. I think people will possibly start eating more local produce and possibly more healthy my own opinion that a lot of the stuff that's been affected is processed food a lot of it is and as as my wife is who is a nutrition will say it's just flavored cardboard <laughs> yes and that's something that you know you're getting an increased awareness as well as to what's going into our food and people are being more conscious of that so they're making more conscious choice like that what we're seeing is that those choices, that they're not free choices. So when I say they're not free, but there's a price to be paid for those choices. So um, we are going to see increases in general consumer costs. You're seeing it already with the petroleum. You're seeing moves to, you know, questions about, you know, what other alternatives do we have for energy? Um, so there's going to be a lot of instability over the next few years. Yeah, I think we're jumped up about, you know, just under 5% at the moment. And it can all end if, you know, if there is a peace agreement in Ukraine and Russia, you know, it can end. The biggest, my biggest fear is that if it continues on too long, the heads of EU might get frightened and then they might just push rates up you know inflation goes up then the wages go up and everything goes up with it and that's what i was saying we could have 40 years of um prosperity shot so i you know a simple yeah, and if, if i want to be very alarmist that i think that five percent could be a very uh low estimate uh, uh it's like what's going on in eastern europe at the moment is you know, dreadfully sad um, I don't share your idea that it's just going to suddenly end and everything's going to go back to be normal. That uh, more than 3% of the world's food comes from Ukraine. That you know from Ireland being an agricultural country, you can't just switch on and off capacity. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would agree because if you then even look at China, you know, China has sort of locked down on zero COVID policy. So nothing's getting in and out. You have what's going on there. I think, but I I think if the Ukraine does or that, you know, stops, it's then the process of reverting, rebuilding. But at the moment, it's it's just going in, in one direction. Like it, and, you know, we see it, you know, people are already noticing it in the streets, you know, the, the food pricing going up and, you know, the price of petrol as well, that there's, and, and people at low wage are questioning what journeys that they make. And then you have the supply chain with the restaurants and everything as well, who can't get staff. So going, this is, you know, a tumbling on since 2020. But the one thing which I, I want to jump back to is that good, strong companies should get their head down, look at all this and think of ideas and strategies how they can plow ahead. That when everyone else is looking at this and feeling nervous, the stronger companies start putting the strategies in place, start putting the plans together so they can be on top for the next decade as well what what would you you know advise a company to do to get that mindset ready indeed that's uh the solutions that i see all the time you know i'm working with innovative companies 
So when there is a problem, somebody comes up with a solution. So if it is a problem on average for the rest of the world, it's an opportunity for the people who are able to come up with solutions for that. So if you're looking at something like, you know, we talked about food security, are there opportunities in food security? If you're talking about uh, food quality and traceability, so some of the things that you can do with traceability, you know, we've, we've heard a lot about um, blockchain and everybody thinks about uh, the cryptocurrency in connection with blockchain. But blockchain can also be used for the traceability so that you can rely on, you know, the food that you're getting, that you can track back, you know, where it came from so that you can get all the information to be able to make informed decisions. Yeah, I think blockchain, you know, there was a conference on in Dublin there last week on blockchain and, you know, it's the traceability and there's so many, you know, so, so many companies that are using it at the moment and, you know, blockchain many years ago was a, was a part of a car. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, and, and that leads to things like smart contracts. So you can then end up not just um, being able to trace things back, but you can also build in quality control that you can build into, you know, for example, if you're buying something in a shop and it's poorly presented, you know, the, the question is, you know, should there be a discount offered to you? And then should the supplier have to be able to cover the cost of some of the poor presentation? All of those things can be built into smart contracts that come also from blockchain technology. Well, is it a case then as well that people will take advantage of the way the world is, you know, you know, you know, we know that people have their stock sitting there uh, paid for for a couple of months and suddenly it has gone up because everything else has gone up as well. Do you think that's fair or do you think that's just e-commerce? Yes, there, there are always opportunists, but we started off this by talking about ethics. So, the, you know, the companies with integrity um, will have safeguards against those types of profit taking. So, you know, abusing the general public just because there's some opportunity out there is something that, you know, reputation is what you live with. And in my business, you know, because I work in intangible assets and the company's reputation is one part of the intangible assets. If you're doing bad behavior, you'll get a name for doing bad behavior and people will remember you. Now, for some people, they don't care about that. They want to make their quick buck and take advantage of the situation. And there will always be people like that. I think the pendulum always swings, doesn't it? And, you know, it comes back around to bite you in the bum, as they say. <laughs> Sponsored by the Dunleary Rattown Local Enterprise Office. You're listening to Business Eye on Dublin South FM. Raymond, billion dollars. When people think of IP and you think of a billion dollars um, and you, you have the book as well to help people, why did you write it? Um. I was fortunate to be exposed to a lot of interesting opportunities over my career. And it really opened up my eyes to the potential of intangible value. And I see a lot of companies are, they're very much at a loss. You know, they hear about intellectual property and they think about one aspect of it. It might be copyright or it might be trademarks or a patent. and they will think, okay, you know, this is something that I need to do. Who do I go and talk to? And they'll go and talk to a patent attorney about it. And the difficulty is that they will only get a single view as to what they need to do. And they don't get an overall encompassing view of what is the intangible value and what are the IP risks to scaling. 
So I've written three books on IT strategy at this stage. And the real focus is just to try and make it accessible to people to understand how can they build their intangible value? How can they clear IP risk? And for the companies who I'm dealing with, they're growing very quickly. The challenges they're looking for are, you know, how to bring in investment. And more and more these days, the investment due diligence is around the intangibles of the business. And they needed some kind of help on that. So that was mainly to bring that people. What have you found when speaking to CEOs or founders of companies? What's the one thing that you see that they all have in common and that you can go in then and fix with them? Um, the main thing is that you know they're ambitious. They want to do things that will make an impact on the world. And there are some things that are in the way for them. So they want to get those things out of the way. And I help them to deal with those kinds of problems um, in a way that perhaps nobody else helps them with. Yeah, you know, I, I, I talk a lot about the entrepreneurial mindset and the managerial skill set. And, you know, sometimes you, 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 one has one or the other. And when you bring them together, great things can happen, happen in a company. And would you work like if you say if someone comes to you and they've got a great project and, you know, it's a million dollar deal and they go, look, we have this. We've been working on it for the last five years. We're a startup. We've got all our funding. But it's not really working for us. Will you go in and kind of go, OK, we look at the project. Will you adjust the the ip itself or will you just help them get those thoughts going in their heads for them to do it first thing is to work out you know is there a fit and is there some way that i can help and what you'll often find is that you know people think that they need to get ip but it turns out they already have a lot of intangibles that they may not even realize they have it's you know like the story of acres of diamonds and they didn't realize they had diamonds in their own backyard so the first thing that I look at is, you know, what are the things that are working for them? And how can we secure the things that are working for them? And then how can we build on that? So those are the kind of main focuses. And then what I would look at as well is if we're mapping it out to the future, that as they grow and as they become more successful, that's a very uh, happy situation. But there are lots of uh, challenges around that success as well. So I help them to plan for how to deal with some of the challenges that may come as they become more successful. And being successful and yourself, how did that grow? You know, where, where, where was the worry and the concerns as you started this business off? And how did that develop for where you are and who you are today as well? Um, well, as I said before, I've been privileged that I've been exposed to a lot of opportunities. Um, I um, blessed or cursed with curiosity. So as I'm exposed to these opportunities, um, I, I really get energized by uh, seeing the things that I can learn from the situation. So I've built on the experiences that I've done and I've ended up being in places that I never even imagined I could be in. And that was by being open to the pivot and what could be learned from that pivot. Was that when you went to Japan and was that at an early age as well? Indeed, yes. You know, when I originally went to Japan, um, it really was a place for technology enthusiasts. So there were, you know, Akio Morita had written his book Made in Japan. There was, you know, books like Japan as number one. 
um, all of you know Time magazine, all of these you know these old traditional newspapers and magazines. Everything was about the Japanese miracle, and I, as a young engineer, was thrust into that and exposed to it at the highest level. So I worked with people from you know the original Toyota production system, which people are still talking about now in terms of agile and um, all of the um, modern concepts. All of those things sprung from the original Toyota production system, and I was involved with some of the people who were part of that original team. Yeah, like I don't think people realize that the first Q code was actually created by Toyota. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I had, you know, experience in Japan. Um, I came back and I was running business in Ireland. I was in Luxembourg for a number of years. So the international exposure was a good way of questioning things that if I had just stayed put and not gone out into the world, I mightn't have even seen what the questions were. My belief that everybody in Ireland should travel, should leave this country for at least two years and then come back because your mind is opened up. Um, I went away for six months and came back 10 years later. (laughs) Yeah. And that's actually something that um, policymakers need to think about. It's not just about people going away and getting the experience, but sometimes just like your situation, you went away for six months and didn't come back for 10 years. There are people who go away for six months or to two years and we don't get them back. And we need to also make sure that we are welcoming people back here so that when they come back here and they bring the prosperity, that they will be rewarded for that. So we have to incentivize people and say that they're welcome to come back here and bring prosperity to Ireland. But it's even trying to adjust. When I came back, I found it very difficult. Um, Just couldn't get my head around, you know, how at that time, and it was the ego and, you know, as well, how backward everything was, you know, and, and couldn't couldn't understand it. And it took me a long time to sort of adjust. Um, and in that adjustment, it was like I had, I ex, the only way I can explain it is I was outside looking at everyone going, oh, my God, what are you doing? And then after a while, I had one foot in and one foot out. And then after I, I had two feet in, but I always carried the thoughts and the travel and the experience that I had for those 10 years. But then I left again, you know, I, I kind of went, Oh, I have to, I have to get out of here. And it was, and I, I then was in the States for, you know, backwards and forwards out in the States at a place in San Diego there for about two years. And then I was eight years in England with software. Um, so it was, I think it was that traveling board and that excitement of seeing things. And I've been everywhere in business, you know, Singapore, I've been, you know, multiple all over the world. I'm now in my 50s and I choose now not to travel. I've seen it all. I'm, I'm happy guarding, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm, but technology has allowed me to still thrive and survive in, in, in a world on it. Do you travel much yourself, Raymond? Do you? Um, I do. I was in Miami last week, and next week I'm going to Romania and Serbia. So um, it's after two years of lockdown, um, it's interesting to be able to see the contrast. Yeah, so I, I I sort of have Croatia on the map now for maybe a holiday with the family this year. With lockdown and with America being closed, how did that affect your business? with the companies that you're dealing with in America? 
It's well, it's it's interesting because before the lockdown, people would always expect you to kind of hop on the plane, go for a meeting, and then come back. And to go for a one-hour meeting, it might take a day of getting there, one hour of meeting, a day coming back, and then maybe a day adjusting as well. So you're losing three days for a one-hour meeting. So the lockdown gave an excuse to just jump on a one-hour Zoom call and then get off again. So there were positives around it, uh, but of course the negatives. It's it's wonderful meeting humans. You have these beautiful 3D humans, and then you take them into Zoom, and they become a 2D representation of these beautiful 3D humans. Yes, you have. It. You know, for example, you go to a meeting, and after the meeting, you're walking out of the meeting, and you're asking people, you know, what did you think of that? So there is that extra value add that you can get from a meeting that when you go to zoom and the meeting is finished the business meeting is finished and then it just cuts off sometimes even before you time to press to leave just the person has <laughs> ended the meeting so so it's become very transactional and for people who are interested in transactions that's very efficient i think though as well that it has brought home to us the value of the human connection and that the human connection can be mediated by technology but the face-to-face human connection, there is something extra to that. But it's even, you know, but even Zoom video has opened up for people to have connection as well. Yes. And it is a different dynamic if you're speaking to someone on Zoom than if you're having them in having a meeting with someone in a room. And I've also learned that you could have a great connection with someone online, but the synergy with you and that person offline mightn't work right which yeah. is quite fascinating but what is interesting though is it's now brought us choices because we've seen both sides of it so you know people are kind of saying you know i don't want to be forced to go back to the office and then there's other people saying that you know i really miss the office it's the answer hasn't been resolved but now at least the questions are out there that you know we have the tools for these virtual meetings and they're very convenient and that you can uh, get through a lot through those meetings and also you have the choice of the face-to-face meeting. So I think that people are going to make more of a choice as to what works for them as well. I think it will open up. It has opened up the world. It will will help people do more business around the world. So the initial, you know, meeting and greeting people, you know, you've saved yourself a day and a half on each side, especially if you're traveling outside the country. You're having those conversations. You're building some rapport up with the people. And then if it need be, if the project is big enough and it warrants for you to go, then you have that opportunity as well. So, I, I, you know, I I was doing Zoom meetings well before lockdown. You know, I was... Yeah, I was yeah it was interesting because yeah, when the coronavirus hit and people were asking me, well, what stocks would you recommend? Because, you know, stocks were crashing everywhere. And I said, Fleur, that's F-L-I-R, that's the company that makes the thermal cameras that you see at airports. And I said, Zoom. And everyone said, what Zoom? <laughs> what Zoom? Can you yes. imagine two years ago, people asking what Zoom, and then you're hearing kind of six months later about Zoom fatigue. Yes, and, and the other thing as well, you know, people, green screens, you could have invented in a green screen company as well, you know, but it, yeah, but I, I think that it's, I think, We'll, I don't think we'd go back to the way we were. I think, you know, you know, we have evolved as humans in some way. A lot of people just want to get on. A lot of people just want to, you know, provide for themselves and their family and be able to help others in doing that themselves. So I think technology has helped. 
What big innovation projects are we not aware of in you know the day to day that you're working on that you can talk about that we'll be seeing developing in the next couple of years that that have that wow factor? Um, it's interesting that you put a whole lot of qualifications in there. You know, what are the things I'm working on that you're not aware of that I can talk about? And that's that's the one sad thing about my work is that nearly everything I do, people are highly secretive about it. Yeah. And yeah. part that's of what why I'm I doing asked. Those yes. <laughs> but, but, but one of the joys of what I'm doing, and that's one of the joys about IP, is that once you have filed a patent application, you now have 18 months before the patent is published. But once the patent application is published, the world knows what you're doing. But you have got protection from the patent system. So it actually gives you the opportunity of talking about your invention. You can talk about your creativity because you know there's some kind of protection. So it is a way of ensuring more sharing and more trust in the ability to share your ideas with people. And then coming back to the Maya Angelou uh, quote again at the start there, the more that we can share these ideas, the more these ideas will multiply. Well, then let me ask you, what have you worked on that we would that 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 is finished now and in the public eye? Um, there's lots of things that we're doing. For example, there's um, there are interesting new technologies around a big shift in um, fast food. That traditionally a fast food drive-through would have one third of the business coming to the fast food restaurant and two thirds would eat inside the restaurant. Since the pandemic, that shifted to one third in the restaurant, two thirds in the drive-through. And you have situations now where you're seeing queues of three, four kilometers long in some situations um, of people going to trying to get into fast food. Um, so I've been involved in developing some very interesting technologies to speed up that journey through the fast food ordering process and also to improve the interchange um, experience of that to make it a more entertaining process so you will start seeing that over the next year or two coming out in the public the dashboard diner i i spent many years commuting around the, the uk with my sandwich and my bottle of water coming out of the airport so um and eating in many restaurants like that technology as well like if you know Okay, once going into McDonald's and seeing that they now have these big screens and it's no longer that human connection, I actually felt cheated. And I didn't, you know, maybe I'm just at that age now. I didn't like it. I, I liked that human connection and talking to people. And th that's what I missed. Um, not that I go to McDonald's all the time. You know those screens they use in McDonald's? Did you realize that it's actually increased their sales? And one of the reasons is because people feel that they can order more without being judged by the person on the till. <laughs> that's amazing. So that's, so that's amazing. the downside of the human connection. It's, 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 it's actually upselling where, you know, it would be, would you like, would you like a large Coke with that or whatever, but it's flashing all different items quicker on the eye that the person can make that decision as well. Well, that's, yeah, that's that's fascinating on it. Raymond, if, if a company is looking, they've got an idea, they've got an idea, and they want to move along with it, what do you recommend they do? What sort of checkpoints should they should they look at before 
they jump out of the box and look for funding or whatever it may be. Is there, if, is there, a, do you know, if, is there a system or a behavior that they need to have a mindset to move forward? What would you recommend to them? Um, it, it's very hard to give a hard and fast rule. Um, but a general observation I make, especially with technology companies, is that a lot of them, um, if they're being run by engineers or scientists, engineers and scientists tend to be perfectionists. And they want to really evolve the product to get it as perfect as possible before showing it to anybody. The problem is that by the time they have perfected it and they bring it out, it may not be what people are looking for. So my big recommendation is to not be a perfect perfectionist at the start and get out and talk to people. Show them what you've done so far. Show them what you're thinking of. Does this have resonances? And then once you show it to them, ask them their opinion then stay quiet and listen to what they say about it. Because the magic is in what the market will say. And you often hear um, you know, investors talking about product market fit. And everybody listens to that and they think of the first word being product. But actually, it's the market. It's the market is smart. You go out and you talk to the market. And rather than talk too much, listen to the market. So go out there, put the question out to the market, listen to what they say, and then fine tune your product to be able to deliver on that. Yeah, I think that's the biggest issue. Um, and we talk about this as well. And I think we spoke before about it, but, you know, people get a great idea and then they run to market because they think it's brilliant and they run to market and they can't figure out why it's not working. And, you know, I've learned over the years, it's identifying what you're good at, identifying, you know, what you bring to the table, purpose, and then creating something around that by asking your market what do they need and when you know what your market needs you come back and you use your talent and your skill to provide that within that space and then it's packaging it up so it's a deliverable to the market as well and i think that's the biggest thing if i may be provocative you started up by saying identifying what you have and what you can bring um already that's too much of a product focus what you need to do even before that is go out and identify what it is the market needs. And even if you don't have it, you can become it. Yeah, when I, when I, when I say identify, it's in an industry, you know that people are screaming for laptops or you know people are screaming and you can make them, but you don't go and build it. That's what I mean is that you go then identify what you're good at. Like I'm not going to identify that something in in the motor industry because i can't my i can't fix cars okay so i'm identifying what i'm good at which is client acquisition and helping companies grow then they go to the market and ask the market what do you need in this space and then create that package that's what it what it is when it's identifying um and if you can and if the market then in that research especially in, in, in tech, if the, they go, well, I need this, and you go, okay, I can't really do that, but let me grab people in that can help me assist to do that as well on it. Yeah, and that's yeah. the magic ingredient. Why don't people ask? Why don't people ask? Do you know? Some people do, and, and you'll see them being successful. Um, part of the difficulty as well with the school system is that we're measuring people on their ability to be right or wrong. And we're rewarding them on their ability to be right or wrong. 
So they assume that you have to be right. And then when you go out to the world, you have to show people how smart you are. Rather than going out with a certain humility to say that actually there's a lot of smart people in the world, let's get to hear what they have to say. And suppressing your own smarts. Because very often you are smarter in your particular thing. You're smarter than everybody else. That's the thing you've been focused on. But you're not the market. And you have to go out there, listen to the market, see what works for them, and see, do they actually get what it is that you think is the challenge? And if they don't get it, it mightn't be their problem. Self-worth. You know, confidence in yourself, confidence in the ability. And possibly that's why people don't go out and ask. And you said, okay, it's to be right or wrong and upset. You know, you see children getting upset because of exam results or whatever. But I think it's self-confident. I think self-worth needs to be implanted more in our school system and getting children to understand their true value instead of telling them what they can't do and are wrong on it. And that's the ideal because, you know, you do see a lot of um, very honorable um, teachers and, you know, very, very well-intentioned teachers. And that they're struggling against a system where everything is measured on, you know, what are the points you get into the leaving search? You know, what do you, you know, what university do you get into? And the whole school is being measured on this. You end up then with, you know, ranking tables of, you know, these schools are in the top 10, these schools are in the top 20. And they end up playing that game. So it's pitting education against metrics and that the metrics aren't matched to whatever true education is. Yeah, but it's also creating, you know, performance anxiety with, with our teenagers in school as well. So, you know, we see a shift in the world with business hopefully in a way the last two years may see a positive shift out of COVID. you know maybe we might bring mindfulness in might bring more creativity in like and i've said this hundreds of times my kids are in a great school they polytunnels and they're learning to grow veg and their daughter brought home lettuce the other day they're they're learning to plant they they play in a, a field with camps you know, they get to run every morning. The teachers make them do a lap around the field every morning to get them, you know, warmed up and get their mind working before they bring them in. You yeah. know, it's, it's, uh, and that's. Yes. And like another good thing that I've seen during the lockdown, which gives me optimism, is community and kindness. That, you know, in my neighborhood, they set up a WhatsApp communication group where people are looking out for each other. And, they're looking out for each other, but they're not intruding on each other. So it's, you know, you know, when, you know, we had neighbors who were immune compromised and we're just making sure everything is okay for them. You know, one of our neighbors is saying that, you know, I'm, I'm going shopping. Do you want me to pick up anything for you? Those things. Or you're seeing children who are playing on the road. And, you know, some children were nine years old. Some children were three years old. And normally children who are nine years old don't play with children who are three years old. But the fact that they were away from school and they were here during the school days meant that they were out on the road playing with each other and looking after each other. So I've seen this kind of community and kindness come in as part of the response to the lockdown. And I do have optimism that that actually will continue, that we know our neighbors better and you know, there's more connection now with our neighbors. And you know, I, I hope that that's repeated around the world. 
Well, you know, our kids are our future and we see that here that small kids are playing with big kids up on the green and, you know, it's 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 wonderful to see. But I'll, before we finish, I'll give you, I know someone who's in a, a WhatsApp group in a, in a, in a, a, a quite a large house in the state and someone posted on in it going, dodgy guy coming in in a white van looks really suspicious and someone says, that's my husband and they start having a row. <laughs> And everyone was seeing this fight go on. So you have to be mindful about that as well. You mind to Raymond, the best advice you can give someone, um, the best business advice, and and then uh, if people want to get your book, where can they pick up your book as well? Um, the main thing is to recognize what you have. Um, we talk about intellectual property, but they're intangible assets. They're creations of the mind, which are coming from your people. So really cherish your people that all of these ideas they are coming from openness of people wanting to contribute and make the world a better place so try to make the environment where they can actually do that good yeah i think that's important and your book if people want to look for me um you know they can go to my website you know i, I deal in intangible values so my website is intaval i-n-t-a val for intangible value.com or they can find me on linkedin or even if you google me if you google ip coach i come up number one on google for ip coach for the world so um um very happy to talk to people if anybody wants some help and you have the three books can you get them on amazon as well or you can get them on amazon um and if you want to be able to find them on amazon there's also links to them from my website as well so you can find the path to amazon from my website as well raymond you're an asset to Ireland and um, oh, thank, thank you. you for coming on to the show as well. Thank you for coming on to Dublin South FM.